I am no dwarf. I'm not a sculptor or mason either. So my experience with stone and its workings is limited to, say, going to a museum and looking at a bust. I've never handled a hammer, never handled a chisel, or even thought twice about seeing that big rock in my backyard sculpted into a visage of ancient bearded heraldry. What I have got, though, is snow crunching beneath my feet and a view that might, just might, make Doran himself think twice. The sapphire hills and cornflower peaks before me hide within them deep lore. Century upon age, twilight, moonlight, and sunlight, the dwarves and other groups have traversed these lands in search of riches. Once a mountain home likely to rival Moria, later a highway of trade between the Noldor and the dwarves, always a bastion of peace and a place of refuge for the stunted folk. It's Ered Lewin, the Blue Mountains on Beneath Your Feet. And distant the lands came men with thirty ships and wanted to reach the never by night, but the weather was not on their side. And as the wind grew stronger and stronger, the rain ran down our cheeks. The bow was turned to Vosgardar, the sails flew up again. Hey, home God and beyond. It's cold. Not an Antarctic, end-of-the-world type cold, but a crisp, high-elevation Christmas morning type cold. Cold enough to lengthen the beards of the many statues of Thorin a few inches with a nice, long icicle. If the Blue Mountains whisper their history through its rocks and bones, Freren's Court, and all of Thorin's Gate, really, belts it out from atop a soapbox. Besides the names, there are many statues, as is the wont of the dwarves, showing various members of the royal family of Doran, not to mention the massive visage of Thorin himself spying the scene. If his face were any more finished, I'd be tempted to say Big Brother is watching. Freren's Court is the entrance to the point of highest elevation in this part of Ered Luin. Further east and north lie the elf city of Athelion and Scorgrim's tomb beyond, both welcomed fabrications for the story of the Lord of the Rings online. Heading southwards and downwards through the narrow valley reveal a more open lowland dominated by rock formations and pine forests, the snow lit up by sunlight like the shiny steel being forged in Thorns Hall behind me. Westwards, the cliffs are sheer, blocking the way to the sea beyond. According to the Atlas of Middle-earth, the Blue Mountains are smaller than their misty cousins to the east, but bear a great amount of iron ore so beloved by the dwarves. With that in mind, it's easy to see how Moria was the great city of the dwarves, while Ered Lewin remained a stop for ore. The further south I go, the mountains give way, and as the land evens out, the snowmelt is made obvious, and to my right loom the forgotten ruins of Sarnor.
the Blue Mountains were always there. In fact, at the time of the War of the Ring, it's one of the oldest places in terms of historic activity in the west of Middle-earth. Eriador was oftentimes the sleepy little town of some Depression-era novel to the bustling Gatsbyan cities that were Gondor and Beleriand before it. In other words, there wasn't a whole lot going on in Eriador in the First Age, recorded anyways, so the Blue Mountains remained the last hallmark of the Roaring First Age for the folks of the Third. First, it was an obstacle to the elves as they followed Orme into the west like a batch of pointy-eared ducklings. Some got stuck along the way, preferring the peaceful uplands and foothills of the arid Lewin to the loathsome road west. If the Misty Mountains didn't get you, the Blue would, leaving only the Quendi to actually make it to Valinor, the Olympus of Middle-earth. And so, on either side of the Blue Mountains were settlements of the Avari, those elves who would not dare the long road west. The western side of the mountains in particular, catching the wet sea air to serve as sources for the many rivers of Assyriand, became a bastion for the green elves. Remnants of these elves and those who moved east after the Sundering are still there at the time of the War of the Ring, having now mingled with the ship-making folk of Círdan and lived there for age upon age. What those elves found later, though, after they got there, was that they were not alone. The massive dwarf cities of Nograd and Belagost were already constructed deep within the mountains and already home to the dwarves, the masters of stone, the stunted folk, those bizarre and estranged cousins to the firstcomers, crafted by Aule but given life by the One. We don't get a lot of detail about those two cities, just the knowledge that they were grand and inhabited by dwarves who were not longbeards. Popular opinion asserts that they were firebeards and broadbeams. Being a curious bunch, the dwarves were soon out and about, trading goods and knowledge with the elves of Beleriand. In a classic, the enemy of my enemy is my friend type tradition, the dwarves had an especial friendship with the folk of Caranthir, the fourth son of Feanor. Happy times all around. But, as are all the tales of Middle-earth, the ending of Nograd and Belagost is a sad one. At the end of the First Age, Beleriand is sunk like the Titanic and a great portion of the Blue Mountains with it, including, presumably, the two great dwarf cities. Those dwarves who survived the Sundering make for the east and find their way to the Dweradelf, Khazad-dûm, the last of the great dwarf mansions. So, as I make my way down, both directionally and elevationally, and I spy the remnants of Sarnor, I can't help but wonder if a little piece of Belagost is there with it. In the ages to come, the dwarves maintained their mines in the Blue Mountains, but mines they were, not the glory of Khazad-dûm or the splendor of the Lonely Mountain, just a working dwarf's abode and the last stop for the trade caravans passing through the Shire on the Great East Road. So how did such a place become the home of Thorin and company, heirs to the throne of Doran and greatest of all Longbeards? That is definitely a tale for another time. Escaping the uplands full of bears, I stop and rest at the waste station of Mnogland, still in the shadow of Sarnor. This is where the steep mountainous clefts end and the valleys and hills of Eriador begin, the end or beginning of the road in one sense or another. Today, that being the time of the Lord of the Rings, the Blue Mountains themselves are home to Durin's folk. I can't say they are purebred longbeards as the other great houses of dwarves collapsed and fell to evil along the way, and many fled to the dwellings of Durin's folk and mingled with them. The dwarves here are doughty, hard-working, mostly free from the terror in the east. Through the long years of dragons and misfortune and rings and meddling orcs, 
Thorin, son of Thorin, withdrew to the Blue Mountains to found his realm in exile, attracting many more of his folk to come and live under his banner. With Erebor reclaimed, there is renewed trade between the two sites, though the Great Road becomes more dangerous as the power in Mordor grows. Now, Turbine has graciously filled in the gaps for Dwalin, allowing him to take over as regent for the settlement at Thorin's Hall. Whether or not this dwarf has the stern stuff necessary to take on that role is not evident in his bumblings throughout The Hobbit, but we'll cut him some slack. It's enough to say that whomsoever is acting as their head, the dwarves are going to mine and build and craft and oil the wheels of their economy. It seems to take balrogs and swarms of orcs to stop them from that work. Metalsmithing, weapon crafting, building shaping, all of these are the hallmarks of Tolkien's dwarves. If work is a necessary evil for men, it is a life's passion for the dwarves. Small wonder, then, that their troves overflow and attract dragons, except here in Ered Luin. This is the only dwarven settlement untouched by the malice of orcs, balrogs, or dragons. If I wanted to get all art school on you, I'd close out this episode by saying that the Blue Mountains are a symbol of the last hurdle of life before relief. It is the final hill to climb, the last barrier before reaching the sea, and that's sea with a capital S. In the First Age, it was the penultimate obstacle for Beor and the houses of the Elf Friends to reach the promised land of Beleriand, free from the wiles of Morgoth in the east. Before that, it was the same for the Noldor and the Vanyar. Beyond the Ered Luin is the end, as far as it goes. The sea, and if not Valinor, the land of the gods beyond, then the end of the world and the end of the threat of evil. As Beor said, A darkness lies behind us, and we have turned our backs upon it, and we do not desire to return thither even in thought. Westwards our hearts have turned, and we believe that there we shall find light. So this has been the second episode of Beneath Your Feet. I hope you enjoyed it. And as you can see, um, I'm hitting a lot of the more popular areas of Lotro and the books earlier uh, before venturing out into less familiar territory. With that in mind, the next episode will be an exploration of Breetown, so be sure to tune in for that and to send any screenshots or other materials related to that village. Be sure to have a look at the blog at LotroBeneathYourFeet.com to see the screenshots that accompany the episode, along with a brand new logo. From there, you can subscribe to the blog and find links to my Facebook page and iTunes feed. Be sure to subscribe. There are lots of good things in the works here at Beneath Your Feet. We're just getting started, but in the future, I'm going to have some guest interviews, some new commentaries, uh, more exciting tunes, and much, much more. So thanks very much for listening and supporting the show. Keep listening. And I will see you next time when we go beneath your feet.
Stand up and fight, stand up and look into the light. Pushing the clouds away, stand up and fight, stand up and see the sky turn bright. Fight for a better day, stand up and fight, stand up and fight. Stand up and fight. Bye.